Welcome to Legal AF First Cut Wednesdays. I am Michael Popak. And for the legal efforts out there who know me from the regular show on Saturdays and Sundays, we are joined with a new co-host on Wednesdays, former prosecutor and friend. I'm going to make this like a, uh, we're introducing a boxing match, Karen. Karen Friedman Agnifilo, also known as KFA. I feel like I'm like ready to rumble now, now that I've introduced you that way. We are thrilled to have Karen join our show. I'm going to call her KFA, the way Ben calls me Popak. I may not do it as many times as he calls me Popak, but I will. I'll be respectful of the fact that she's earned a nickname. She'll tell us more about that in the origin story portion of today's show. We're going to be doing a 30-minute weekly magazine-style drill down. Same brand of Legal AF that you've come to know and love. It's going to be piercing. It's going to be lively. It's going to be hard-hitting. But instead of doing stump stump ben and michael over 11 topics on a saturday and sunday karen and i are going to drill down on one or two really interesting things from the week or maybe from the month we may have a guest or two not today but these will be ripped from the headlines stories but the same special brand of litigated politics that you know and love. I am overwhelmed with joy to have Karen join me each Wednesday. She'll be bringing her unique perspective of being an over 30 year prosecutor in one of the elite, if not the elite prosecutor unit in the country, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, the model for every law and order episode you've ever watched over the last 30 years is Robert Morgenthau, who Karen worked for and that office and she was a senior leader in that office under, starting with Morgenthau and under Cy Vance. And she brought the order to law and order in that office. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. We're so pleased to have you. I thought it would be good. Ben and I kicked off 42 episodes again. Uh, my co-anchor, Ben Mysalis on Legal AF. We, we kicked off with an origin story of, of why Legal AF and how he and I got together uh, and, and decided to be co-anchors and why we thought there was a need for this type of podcast. Um, I want to talk about your origin story and how you got behind this microphone today. I know Ben's already. It's something about parents, an exploding planet, rocket ship, something landed in Kansas, something like that. It's either <laughs> that or Superman. I always get his origin story <laughs> wrong. But let's hear about your origin story and how did you end up being my co-anchor today? So I... Uh was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. I went to Venice High School and UCLA undergrad. And I was very much a product of growing up in LA back in the 70s and 80s, which was sort of an interesting time. And I wanted more for my life and I wanted to do something with my life other than Hollywood and celebrities. And back then that was really all you had in the LA scene. And so I moved to Washington. Everybody was in, everybody was in the business, right? And the business was entertainment. Exactly. But I was a different person. I didn't really fit in in that environment. I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to save the world. That's what I used to say when I was was young and, and starry eyed. And I think was, some your of that was your family in the business? No, my family was not in the business. And, and who I am is very much like most people in large part influenced by their family and by their parents. And, and my mom and my dad were very instrumental in sort of my career, especially my dad, who 
uh, he's a Holocaust survivor. My grandparents were, and he had a furniture store, a Friedman furniture store in downtown Los Angeles. Shout, shout out to Friedman's furniture. It's, you know, it was, it was the typical immigrant middle-class yeah. uh, sort of upbringing. And we were very lucky to have that obviously, but my grandfather who was in a concentration camp in the Holocaust uh, came to this country and was so grateful. He wanted to give back. And so he joined the California national guard and I have wow. the let, I know I have, I have the letter framed when he was in the yeah. national guard and, and my father was very much wanted to give back and not just be a furniture salesman. And so he worked for the Los Angeles police department back in the day. Um, LAPD has these things called the reserved officers. So it's like yeah. part time, but you're a full fledged police officer. This, and and this sounds like L.A. confidential furniture salesman by day. I know, I know. L.A. cop on the beat by night. This is awesome. It was interesting. He was he was in this unit uh, called um, the crash unit, which is infamous. And a movie was made uh, about the crash. What, unit what were called, they crashing? What were they crashing <laughs> well, into? It was called community <laughs> stood for community resources against st street hoodlums. So not politically correct. <laughs> but back then that was the gang unit of LAPD. And they made a uh, Sean Penn made a movie about it called wow. Colors. It was a, it was anyway. So that was a big part of what I thought was important. And, and again, growing up in L.A. back then, crime was was very high. There was a lot of gangs and a lot of shootings. And I wanted to go out and I really wanted to be a part of the solution and be a crime fighter. And my dad said not as a police officer. He felt so strongly about it. He yeah, he he also saw some things that were very upsetting to him and he saw some things on the force and saw police officers do things that weren't in line with his values. And so did he you retired. think about did, did you think about at one point? I did that side of law enforcement. I did. I yeah. absolutely did. And I sometimes still think about how yeah. great it could have been, but I didn't. And I moved to Washington. <laughs> I moved to Washington instead, Washington, D.C., because that's where if you want to save the world and you like politics, that's where one goes. Oh, yeah. And so I went to law school in Washington. I loved it. And I never went back west. And I, I always say I became an accidental prosecutor because while I was in law school, while many people were working at fancy law firms, I was working at the uh, District of Columbia prison system, the Lorton Correctional Facility, where I wanted to help prisoners and I wanted to help people. I felt like you have people 24 seven and hopefully we can help them so that when they come out, there is something that they can do to become a productive member of society. Well, and that's what I wanted to do. That's going to be a very good segue in a couple of minutes when we get into the actual uh, segment that we're going to discuss on this first kickoff podcast for Legal AF Wednesdays, which is going to be progressive criminal justice reform and campaigns to put a certain type of prosecutor in their chairs. And we're going to talk about that next. I, but, but let's just I just want to I, I am intrigued. I could go all day on your origin story, because even though you and I know each other and have worked together, you know, some of this is new to me and I, I like it. And it actually matches, as people know, my own you know, we all have unique origin stories, but, you know, my my grandparents came over. They avoided the Holocaust because my great grandfather came here earlier than and got got his family out of Europe. And, but my, you know, my great grandfather, and my grandfather were seltzer men. 
they were beer runners during the prohibition. <laughs> uh, you know, Boardwalk Empire looked a lot like stories my grandfather had told yeah. me growing up. So I really wasn't interested in, in law enforcement <laughs> the way you were. But you and I uh, kind of parallel, we didn't realize that we orbited each other. We're sort of the same vintage, came out of law school around the same time. I did go to one of those fancy law firms to get started, but I thought about going to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District and to be a prosecutor. It was foreclosed to people like you and I. There was a hiring freeze in the, uh, in the early 90s and you couldn't get in, but you went, I, I'm not even going to say to the next best thing. For me, and I'll tell you why I feel that way, you went to the best thing. You went to work for Robert Morgenthau in the Manhattan DA's office and were there for an extraordinary long time. Tell our, our viewers and listeners about that. So when I interviewed for the Manhattan DA's office, I'd never been to New York. I thought all prosecutors were fascists and I had no interest in being a prosecutor. It, I, it was by accident that I got the job and I interviewed because there was an interview spot and I was honest and I told them my opinions about uh, about prisons and prisoners and reform and progressive prosecution. And they somehow hired me anyway. And I found that to be telling because that says a lot about what the Manhattan DA's office is about. And it, I couldn't have been more wrong about what prosecutors were. And I thought, did you okay, interview with Morgenthau? I did. I did. Oh, that, wow. And yeah, I did interview with him and he offered me the job. And when I started working there, I thought, okay, this will be fun. I'll go live in New York for a few years. I'll work there for a few years and that's it. And of course, three decades later, uh, I ended up leaving about seven, six or seven months ago. And when I left, I, the ultimate position I held, I held was I was the chief assistant DA, which is the number two under the district attorney. So, well, that's why I joked that you brought the law to law and order, <laughs> at, le at least, or order in the law and order, at least to the office. And um, yeah, when I heard you came out and that uh, one of my, one of my colleagues had hired you for his firm, I was like, wow, what, a, what a great pickup. You don't pick up KFAs every day. They're not making any more KFAs. I can only think of two of them. And I happen to be friends with both of them. One of them being Lucy Lang, who's a mutual friend, who's now the inspector general for the state of New York, but ran for the top job in Manhattan and came in a very valiant fourth. That sounds, sounds like it's faint praise, but in that competitive race with eight or nine people, she did exceedingly well for a young, a young prosecutor. And we haven't heard the last of her, just as we haven't heard the last of KFA, mm -hmm. not just every Wednesday, but in her career. So, but let me ask you, so you, you worked for Morgenthau for what was it? 20 years. So I actually worked for Morgenthau for about 15 years. And then mm -hmm. uh, I left and I worked for Mike Bloomberg when he was mayor of New York City. I've heard of him. What is he doing these days? <laughs> <laughs> he's he's being the awesome Mike Bloomberg that he is, yeah. actually. And, and what you do, what you what you do for Mayor Bloomberg? So I true to who I was when I started at the DA's office, I really wanted to do policy. I wanted to again, save the world, as I used to, as I used to say, I wanted to help people. And I saw a lot of systemic problems in the criminal justice system as a prosecutor. And I thought, I want to go work for the mayor and work on criminal justice policy. So I worked for 
on criminal justice policy for for the mayor. And I think that's where I learned uh, a tremendous amount about uh, how to work on issues at a very high level. It was he was an extraordinary mayor and he hired extraordinary people to work for him. And it was an incredible professional experience for me to work there. And then Cy Vance was elected and he started in January of 2010. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't know Cy Vance and I thought I was gone. I thought I'm done with being a prosecutor. And uh, I met Cy Vance. We we hit it off and he I thought he was had some incredible ideas, really progressive and new at the time. There really weren't many people talking about the things he was talking about, uh, things like conviction integrity units and 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 deferring many, many cases and reimagining the criminal justice system. And he he wanted the, the racial inequities in the criminal justice system. He brought the Vera Institute of Justice to review the office and help advise us on how we can uh, how we can hopefully, again, reimagine the criminal justice system in Manhattan. And I was really excited by what he had to say. So he brought me in and I worked for him for 12 years, 11 and a half years. And well, what I like about that and we're and and just to tell our listeners and followers now, the good news is that Karen's going to be able to talk with me about things that happen in the Manhattan DA's office, as long as she didn't actually work on the case. (laughs) So there's going to be things you're like, God, I wish that Karen would give an opinion about the Trump investigations. We're not going there on Wednesdays. Ben and I will do it on Fridays, on Saturdays and Sundays. So you might see a little bit of a hole in our swing about things we're not covering, but it doesn't mean that she's she's banned or barred or gagged from talking about everything in her 30 years experience and her long experience in Manhattan DA's office. And she'll be bringing that special flavor to her. I'll tell you why I like the Manhattan DA's office. I actually modeled my own in-house trial team that I built at a Wall Street firm, which we did something very unique, as people know. I actually hired frontline litigators, trained them, and then we tried our own cases in-house as opposed to farming them out to outside law firms. So I had 23 people, and in a four-year period, we tried over 40 zero matters, arbitrations, federal trials, jury trials, you know, where it was a jury trial, I was usually the lead jury, the jury person. But when I was selecting people, I, without knowing that one day I would meet you, I actually said to them, I want this office modeled after not the U.S. Attorney's Office. I want it modeled after Morgenthau's Manhattan DA's office because he he recruited the elite, the creme de la creme, and he trained them that way. And some of the finest litigators and prosecutors, litigators after they were prosecutors, came out of his office. I would actually say that in the recruiting pitch. And if their eyes lit up and they got excited, I was like, okay, you're hired. And if they were like, mm, I don't really understand, I don't know what you're talking about, then that person wasn't for me. So it must have been really heady stuff to be working with the echelon of pr- prosecutors that you were surrounded by and, and that you contributed to. It was incredible. It was obviously uh, an incredible experience. And the people who work there are truly the best lawyers I've I've ever experienced. And and they are just smart, thoughtful, caring people who really, really care about doing the right thing. And and that's who they are, not just what they do. That that being said, 
just a finishing sort of how I ended up where I am now, I knew before a lot of other people knew that Cy Vance was retiring and not running. And as is common practice and every, I think every elected person does when they come in, they want their own people. So I knew I was going to be out of a job one way or another. And I thought long and hard about whether I would run for a district attorney. And part of me wanted to, because obviously I love the office. I love the people there and the opportunity to do great work and continue to make the changes that Cy Vance was, was making. I was, was something that I really wanted to, to do just like Lucy Lang, who you mentioned who who I worked with there. It was, it was something to, to think about and consider. And when Alvin Bragg, uh, tossed his hat in the ring, I, I looked at him and I th- looked at sort of what he stood for and what he said. And I thought to myself, what would I say? Cause you know, you do these debates and what would I say if someone asked me what I thought of him and, and whether I would be better than him as district attorney. And at the end of the day, although I think I would have been an excellent DA, um, I felt that, and I feel that The time now is to have a person of color with the life experiences of a person of color like Alvin. And and of course, he also has an incredible, uh, incredible credentials. State and federal prosecutor. He he has everything. He he has all the qualifications. He has, you know, he's the real deal. But on top of that, what he has is what I don't have. And it's time for that. This is the time for that. And, and I, I'm always struck by the, the image of when, when, when President Trump was making abortion laws and it was a, a table full of white men uh, making sort of policy and laws around abortion. And I thought, you know, Man, mans, mansplaining yeah. abortion as, as only they can from personal experience. And, and obviously that's that's an obvious example of 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 sort of what right. I'm about to say. When you look at the criminal when you look at state court criminal justice and you look at who's arrested and you go down to arraignments, you can go to arraignments anytime, day or night. And and this is back when I started in the 90s and true today. So for 30 years, it's people of color. I've I've found myself recognizing names that were coming through the system where we have now prosecuted a grandfather, a father and a child in the same family. Clearly what we're doing and and old school criminal justice as well-meaning as we were and are isn't isn't it's time for change. It's not that it it doesn't work. It's time for a change. And it was time for a change. Someone like Alvin. And so to me, in the same way that that a whole table full of of white men shouldn't be, you know, making abortion policy without without that voice, it's it's time for a person of color. And it was Alvin's time. You know what I just learned about you that I, 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 I'm sure I knew, but I want our listeners and followers to know you are too honest for politics and you're too authentic for politics because other people in your same position did not reach the same calculus as you did. And um, and there's other voices that need to be represented. So now I want to transition. This is a perfect, perfect segue, KFA. You probably didn't realize it when you were doing it into what we're going to drill down on today, which is criminal justice reform and where Democrats like George Soros and huge fundraisers have been putting their money 
to try to reform criminal justice by getting like-minded prosecutors elected, because prosecutors are, are by and large elected, getting them elected around the country and reforming criminal justice from the inside. And I want to give a statistic that people have known, a Popakian statistic to launch our discussion. And I'm sure you'll agree with every part of this from your own experience. 95% of prosecutors around the country are white. 75% are men. So the vast majority of prosecutors, you are unusual. The vast majority of prosecutors are white men. And what is missing is people of color and people of different gender and sexual orientation. And that's missing. So whereas the Republicans, just to get a little political, a little policy, have focused an inordinate amount of their attention on the BS of critical race theory to try to grab school board elections. And they're trying to run and grab state houses to change voting laws, which we call voter suppression laws, and gerrymandering in order to cut out people of color from elected office. The Democrats, led by George, the George Soros's of the world, have been going into the underbelly of the criminal justice system to try to get like-minded prosecutors and progressive prosecutors elected. So he's put upwards of three million, not just him alone, but George Soros alone has put $3 million into individual races around the country, which is a shitload of money in a prosecutor race. You know, it's a lot for Manhattan. It's a ton of money for places like in Alabama and Texas and, and Georgia. So it can really swing the race. And he does it through a safety and justice pack of his. He, he names everything safety and justice. But I want to talk about what is what is the criminal justice system that needs to be reformed? Why does it need to be reformed? And will electing these kind of prosecutors, including Alvin Bragg, before we end today, we're going to talk about his con now controversial first day memo, literally a memo that he wrote to try to reorientate the policy of the office. Let's talk about what what are we trying to do with progressive reform? I think there's a lot of things. I think, first of all, in the in the 70s, when uh, the, the big reform was to um, to for the people who uh, have, are mentally ill were institutionalized, it was to deinstitutionalize people, which was a smart thing to do. But everyone was hoping that there'd be a social safety net to catch them. And unfortunately, the social safety net has been the criminal justice system. And whether you're some somebody who's a substance abuser or somebody with a behavioral health issue or a mental health issue, whatever it is, the de facto default response is someone's in crisis and you call 911 and you end up in the criminal justice system. And that's, I would argue, worse than a, a psychiatric institution, frankly, to be in prison or in jail. So I think number one, that's what has that has to be reformed. And I think also just the inequities in policing. You know, police go where the crime is, but there doesn't have and, and so what they do, what happens is they they see people doing things because they happen to be there and then they arrest them for those things. So marijuana usage, you know, you look at statistics and and white people smoke marijuana just as much, if not more than people of color. More, more. <laughs> and you but yet you look at marijuana arrests and it's 98 percent people it's of disproportion. color. It's disproportionate. So we're talking it absolutely about absolutely is. 
racial disparity in arrest and then racial disparity in the ultimate sentencing after arraignment, right? Absolutely. And so the the thought is that instead of prosecuting your way out of these problems, instead, let's do things like try and invest in our communities. So to eliminate the inequities in the first place. And so that things like housing instability or financial instability or all, all the things that can lead people to do things out of whether it's whether it's desperation or despair or for whatever reason people do things um, that wind up in the criminal justice system to try to address the the root cause of those issues. And I think that's where the reform, where people are talking about reform the most and what's what's sort of interesting. But the thing is, and 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 what I think is 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 where there's growing pains is there's sort of a sweet spot, right? You talk about safety and fairness, and a lot of people talk about it in terms of numbers. And I, I would push back on that. I would push back. So, so some of the numbers, for example. So, so when you are arrested in New York City, for example, you before you uh, if, if bail is set and you are detained, you are detained in a jail called Rikers Island. It's sort of a notorious facility that yeah. is infamous. And it is it's like it's like the Alcatraz of New York City. Exactly. But it's also it. It's it's sort of it's all over the news these days because the violence and just it, it, it's just absolutely dysfunctional needs to be closed yeah. and replaced with with local jails. So, so 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 let me break it down. You're innocent until proven guilty, but you've been you've been detained pre arraignment or pre trial and you're put in this Lord of the Flies, uh, a place of complete despair out of control violence. So if you weren't a criminal when you went in and you're innocent, you're going to be surrounded and pressurized by a lot of criminal elements. You may well be a criminal when you come out of pre-trial, pre-arraignment detainment. Exactly. So Rikers Island in the 90s had a daily population of about 20,000 people. It's a lot of people. But also in the 90s, New York City, which has a population of about 8 million, had about 2,000 homicides per year. And the way law enforcement responded to the crime problem that was in New York City was to arrest and incarcerate. It was tough on crime, tough on crime. It was the Giuliani era. He was he was a mayor in New York City back in the day before he sort of, you know, Went crazy. Became, became the person that he is today. <laughs> um, but he, so he, so, so it's, but, but today there's about 4,800 people on Rikers Island. So the population has shrunk considerably and, and under Cy Vance, the murder rate. So just backing up in 1990, there was over 500 murders in Manhattan. I'm just going to talk about Manhattan. Per, not- per what? Per, for the year. For the year. Yes. Sorry. For the and, year. And now what? And now what's the number? So now the numbers in the this year. Well, last year we ended a little higher. Uh, we were about 70 or 80. But three years ago, we were at 43. I mean, we got down so, right, so low. So so stop right there. Everybody says New York, New York and COVID New York, post COVID New York is a super dangerous place. And look, I'm not minimizing it. We had a terrible tragedy three days ago, which I've tweeted about with a, a, a female executive at a accounting firm who was pushed to her death 
at nine o'clock in the morning in Times Square with police presence by a homeless man, obviously mentally unstable and deranged. Literally, he picked her out of a crowd, pushed her into an oncoming train, and she died. Uh, Michelle Ho, terrible. And I tweeted today, there are 400 and 450 plus subway stations around New York City. Mayor, Ad you know, Mayor Adams put a cop in every station, even if even if you have to hire to do it. If you're going to be if you're going to return public safety, but your numbers are interesting because when I went to college in New York in the 1980s, which is right after Bernie, literally the year after Bernie gets a white nerd on a subway with a gun, pulled it out and shot four black youths because he felt threatened by them. The, the murder rate was 10 times higher in the 1980s under Giuliani than it was under the Democratic mayors or otherwise. Um, and so by statistically, the city is not more dangerous now than it was when you and I were young professionals in New York. Oh, not even close. So for, for those of you not from New York, just really quick, New York City consists of five boroughs, Manhattan, Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens and Staten Island. So sometimes when we talk about numbers, we talk about New York City numbers. Sometimes we talk about Manhattan numbers. So I'm just going to talk about Manhattan right now. So it's one of the boroughs. And Manhattan, as I said, had over 500 murders in the early 90s. And a couple of years ago, we got down into the 40s. We're creeping back up into the 70s. On top of that, shootings are up significantly. And mm -hmm. the difference between a gunshot victim who's just a shooting victim versus a homicide sometimes has to do with your medical care more than or the aim of the person, not the intent of the person. So there are there are crime is feeling people are feeling less safe because many of those numbers are starting to creep up. <coughs> Excuse me. So sure. what I what I wanted to say was it's not to me when I look at it, a lot of people talk about numbers and we're safer. You know, we, we Rikers Island has fewer people. We went from 20,000 to 4,800 and all the numbers have gone down. And that is true. But some of that has to do with prosecuting the right people. It's not just about the numbers and it's about getting the right people. And that's where the nuance comes in and where the professionalism of prosecutors and defense attorneys and judges all working together to figure out who are the people who can be diverted to a program safely and helped. Maybe somebody who, who suffers, struggles with a right. mental health problem or somebody who just needs job training so, or somebody, so you, you know, those types of things. So you're talking about diversion programs that divert the person away from the classic jail cell and put them into a different type of program to, for them to get the help that they need. Now, let me, let me, because we got about five minutes left and I do want to cover and I think you're you're the right person to talk about it. Is Alvin Bragg's the New York the new Manhattan DA's first day memo, uh, and to to kind of end our segment on. There's two things that you said today about Cy Vance that are very very interesting, and I'm sure unknown by most of the people that will be watching this podcast. One of them you said, I left because I saw the writing on the wall. If Alvin's coming in, he's probably going to want to pick his own people. But when Cy came in. And you were there from the Morgenthau era. He picked you. I thought that was a testament to Cy Vance. And but, to I had, but I had left. 
That's I wasn't. true. He brought you. Oh, I see. So you <laughs> think that little gap? Back. He he was able. You were able to be a side dance person exactly. because you left. All right. Okay. So I won't give him as much credit. And if he ever is a guest on our show and we invite him to be, uh, I will I will leave that out. The second one though is you outlined, and we want we don't have enough time on this show, but we will do it over time. Maybe when he's a guest here, you did outline all of the progressive prosecutorial policies um, that Sai implemented and continued in a way from Morgenthau, but made it his own office and put his own imprint on it. And he doesn't get enough credit for that. And he gets a lot of flack from people in the Twitterverse who don't understand the job or the man or the person. And we're going to talk more about that, but he was much more progressive than people give him credit for. Don't you agree? Completely. I, I hope we spend a whole episode talking about that. I have, I have Maybe a lot with of, him. <laughs> I have a lot of feelings about about that and and who, what all of the accomplishments that he did and how extraordinary they are. Yeah, and good. We're going to talk about it. And maybe as I half kiddingly, maybe with him as a guest, a guest one day. But let's end the let's end the episode. Our first episode. I'm really excited. Mm-hmm. You know, KFA on legal AF on LAF. Wow, this is awesome. I'm sure there's going to be a meme out of this now with you, (laughs) me, the initials. It's going to be fun. But let's do day one. Alvin Bragg gets sworn in Jan one along with the mayor. He wanted a a hard fought elected. Uh, It was a campaign. There were eight people in it and he prevailed not by a little. He didn't just squeak by. He had a very nice uh, outcome in terms of his election. And then he decides he wants to put his imprint on the position. He spent a lifetime preparing to be the Manhattan DA. He got the job of his dreams. So he puts out a memo that's going to set the course for the office. How did that go? And what was the, what was the memo and how did that go? Okay. So he, he, the memo, I have it right here. It's 10 pages. It's dated January 3rd, 2022. And by the way, this is, shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone because he talked about the day one memo during yeah. his campaign. So but he 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 uh, put this memo out. Uh, it's ten pages long, and it starts with a letter to all staff, kind of describing his philosophy, and then linking to various studies that back up his philosophy. Things like we should invest more in alternatives to incarceration. We should in, reduce pretrial incarceration and uh, focus on keep holding people accountable, not the length of the sentence, things like that. And so that was sort of setting forth his philosophy. And just hey, re- KFA, will you do everybody a, f- a favor when we're when we're done? Will you post this and pin this to a tweet of yours so sure. people can go find it? Absolutely. I'm happy to do that. And he talked about things like also actively supporting those who are reentering and all of the things he wanted to do were to make us safer and free up prosecutorial resources on those who are going to focus on violent crime. So honestly, I don't think anyone could disagree with with any of the principles that he set forth in his memo. He was elected to achieve those principles. And frankly, I would argue much of our philosophy, uh, I say our, because I, but I no longer work there. Uh, much of the Manhattan DA's office philosophy already is to do many of those things. However, I do agree with him that it, it's time to do more. And now is the time to do more. And so he put forth the memo. And, and the memo, uh, which is seven pages long, is the one that most people are, is very controversial. And, and when I read it, 
I, I thought to myself, okay, why was this so controversial? And I think it's because when you're doing change, when you're trying to make change, even if he's doing the right thing, and, and I know this because we did it with Cy Vance. I know this from experience. There's, there's two ways you can make change in an office like, like the Manhattan DA's office that has a storied history and storied reputation and excellent, extraordinary career prosecutors who have devoted their lives to doing this and who are the top at the top of their field, right? How are you gonna, how are you gonna change things? You can do it one of two ways. You can do it by fiat and say, this is how we're gonna do it. Or my way can, or the highway. Yes, or you can do it by trying to win over the hearts and minds of the people there. And if I had one criticism for myself under Cy Vance was that I, I wanted to rule, I wanted to win over the hearts and minds. I didn't want to rule by fiat. And the reason I would criticize myself for that is because we didn't get done as much as I would have liked to have gotten done. I think sometimes you have to be a little more my way or the highway. Uh, mm -hmm. That being said, I would argue that that um, D.A. Bragg perhaps could have spent a little more time not just winning over the hearts and minds internally in the office, but also externally. He's getting a lot of pushback externally from from the community and from the people in New York who feel that he's going to make them less safe. And and the, and the mayor of New York who who and, and the police. Yeah, the mayor, who, the police a, commissioner, a 20 year captain in the police force who campaigned on law and order and on returning public safety to a city that perceptually looked like it was run amok, uh, especially after the riots that happened as a tangent of the BLM. It wasn't the BLM protesters. It was rioters and looters who who got who got inside the, the protest in order to go rob Gucci's um, yeah. and use it as a cover improperly. But, but, but the new mayor so is a here, person, the new mayor is a person yeah. of color. The police commissioner is a person of color. It's just very Absolutely. interesting. And he really should have taken the time, I think, to get buy-in from people. And that takes time. And that was a frustration yeah. under Vance. So sometimes we would want to do things and, but you have to take the time he, to do that. That process so is important. So in your view, it shouldn't necessarily, it didn't have to be the first day memo. It could have been the first month memo. And that would have given him more time to to go meet with Mayor Adams, to meet with the new police commissioner, to kind of float this trial balloon out. It doesn't mean he wasn't going to stand by his convictions, but it means he would have gotten more support. So now and meet with the and meet with the prosecutors inside uh, yes, the office in, who would have told the office, them right. and who would have told because there are a few things in the memo. Much of the it's memo. A little, it's a little sloppy. It's a little sloppy. I'll give you two things that sloppy. I I'll to tell you two things I found sloppy as a civilian in reading it because I read it second day, second, the first day memo I read the next day. And there were two things I took away from it. And I'm a lawyer and I do this for a living. One was um, he's rarely going to prosecute resisting arrest. Now, if you really read deeper, it's not exactly that, but that's what it looks like. So that looked like a license to the street that don't worry, you can resist arrest and which puts cops in jeopardy. That's a problem. And the second was um, how few violent, uh, how few crimes he really was going to end up prosecuting. Now, maybe that's because he was going to be diverting more in the diversion programs, but it looked like a license to lawlessness, which is exactly the wrong message. You, for progressives who are trying to reform criminal justice, you don't want to say to the people, hey, you're going to be less safe with this social experiment. You want to say you're going to be more safe and, and for a longer institutional period of time, 
but it's but we're not going to do the stop and frisk. We're not going to do all the things that like Giuliani did. We're not going to care as much about broken windows and graffiti on subways. But 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 there we have a plan and we have a program. And at the end of it, you will be safer. Where was that messaging? Well, so the problem is what was lost is so much of what is in this memo is already being done. We're not going to yeah. prosecute marijuana. We're not going to prosecute theft of services. Guess what? Syvans did that already. So yeah. there, much <laughs> of what's in here didn't need to come back at him as a backlash. So, yeah. and that's what's frustrating for me is it's it feels like an unforced error. There are a couple things in here though that I frankly think are troublesome and that I think he's walking back like, Gunpoint like robbery, what? gunpoint robbery, mm -hmm. that you're going to ch charge that as as pettit larceny. Pettit larceny is the same thing as, as literally stealing a, a pack of gum from the store. And so, you're gonna... so just for our just for our legal efforts out there, you have the difference between grand larceny, which is at a certain level of value or or crime, and then pettit or petite larceny, which is what KFA is talking about now, which is at a lower level. But you could do a pet, you could do a pettit, you, you call it pettit, pettit larceny with a gun. <laughs> and that sounds like that person should be taken away in handcuffs. That's, that's a gunpoint Not, robbery, right? That's, that's a, a that's a robbery, robbery in the first degree. That's a B violent felony, which is the, uh, almost you know yeah. it, it's a a violent felony is is murders and and B violence are are, are things like like gunpoint robberies. It's a serious crime, and he's already yeah. walking that back. He didn't mean that, but the way that right. it was written is it makes people think, "Are you kidding me?" And so, so there are things in there. I think the sentiment in there is mostly good, uh, but there are certain things in there that I think could have been, I think he needs to be given a chance. And I think people need to support him. And yeah. I think he's going to do great things. Well, well, that was the topic of the Midas Touch Brothers podcast this last couple of episodes, which is progressive Democrats do a lousy job of communicating how well they're doing. And a lot of, as you say, unforced errors and backbiting and cannibalizing among Democrats when the, when things and hand wringing, which the Republicans don't have, maybe it has to do with moral conscience. I don't know. The, 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 Repu the Republicans circle the wagons when one of them is in trouble. That, it, the, the you're, Democrats, making, you're making my point. Yeah, we don't. the Democrats, we, the, you know, we eat like, our why young. Is, we eat our, we eat our, that, that's good. That'll be our new slogan. <laughs> Legal AF Wednesdays, we don't eat our young. Am so, I allowed so look, to say things like that? But no, but that's yes, really how you, I see you, it. You just, you just did. But you have to make me a promise and make a promise to our Legal AF audience, which is you, that you're going to continue to bring this perspective and this kind of inside baseball detail about, about your former life as a prosecutor to, to things that we cover on this, on this Wednesday. Will you do that for us? Absolutely. All right. So we unfortunately we have to end it. I made a promise to the audience and to Ben and to and to the brothers that we would try to keep this in nice bites. You and I talked about the perfect length of a podcast of this type is about 30 minutes. So you can you can get it into a commute. You can get it into a workout. You can get it in when you got to walk away from your family. And we're going to do just that. So if it's Wednesdays, it is legal AF first cut Wednesdays. If it is Friday, Saturday, Sunday or the rest, it's legal AF with Michael Popak and Ben Mysalis. And of course, we're produced by the Midas Touch uh, uh, Network. And a shout out, I get to say this and never say it usually, shout out to the Midas Mighty and to the Legal AFers. Karen, any last departing words? Just, I'm, I'm so 
just delighted that you're having me here. And hopefully I, I, I'm thrilled that you want me to bring this perspective because, it's, because I think it is misunderstood. I think there are such phenomenal people who are doing good things, especially the progressive prosecutors around the country. And we need to, we need to support them and lift them up and help them succeed because we all will benefit from that. KFA and Popak in the house every Wednesday for Legal AF. And we'll see everybody next week.